Thanks for listening to this week's Hope at Crossroads. We are glad you're taking the time to listen. As you tune in today, if you need encouragement or prayer, please reach out to us by texting 864 864- Two eight eight one six two six, or you can connect with us through our website, hope at crossroads dot org. Spread the word to your friends and let them know they can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And now, here's this week's message. Amen. Would you uh, would you pray with me this morning? While your heads bowed and your eyes are closed, right there in your privacy of your seat I believe with all my heart we could have we could have an invitation right now so I just want to ask the question after the music and especially that testimony that you've heard if you left this place today dear friend do you know the Lord Jesus Christ just ask God right there where you sit Lord do I know you He knows you because He created you, but do you know Him? Maybe this morning you've realized, I need need that relationship with Jesus. In just a few minutes at the close of our service, you'll have an opportunity just to indicate that. But maybe right now in the privacy of your seat, you'd just like to say, you know what, I'm not sure. I, I know that I need that relationship with Jesus. That's what's missing in my life. If that's you this morning, would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? not going to embarrass you today. You just say, I need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give you this service. We pray, Lord, that you'd be honored through what's preached, that you would honor the preaching of your word, and you'd speak to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to uh, 1 Timothy as we continue our study, 1 Timothy chapter 6. While you're turning there, uh, let me say uh, thank you so much to our our praise team and our musicians. And uh, Wanda, thank you. I love love you and Bob. Thank you for that testimony. Um, Love to hear what God is doing in your life, and we want to do that more frequently. Because you don't always need to hear from the pastor. Sometimes it's important to hear from one another. And sometimes, hopefully, most of the time that happens in your small group or your Sunday school class, which is why we emphasize that. But it's good to hear from one another. And so I'm grateful for that testimony that we heard. I'm also grateful for you as a church family. If you missed it, uh, it's in your bulletin. If you were gone last week uh, during Memorial Day, uh, I want to say thank you uh, to our church who collectively... The power of teamwork gave 131,000, let me get it exact, excuse me, $138,798 towards our building fund and our building project last week. So praise the Lord. God is at work. God is at work. And uh, we follow Him. We follow Him. First Timothy chapter 6. Uh, just a reminder before we start reading, Paul is writing to Timothy giving him some words about proper instruction, proper relationship, and proper communication in the church. He's not writing this letter to a bunch of pagans or those people who don't know God. He's writing to people who are in the church. And it may surprise you, some of the things that he says, you may, you may have the reaction that I had as I read some of these verses. Wow, you have to tell church people this stuff? 
Yeah, you do. Some of you are shaking your head. That doesn't surprise you at all. Yeah, you've been around. You've been around. I know, I know. Reminds me of that book I saw at uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, everything I learned about cussing, fighting, and quarreling, playing church softball. <laughs> you seen that book? Oh, yes. So even in the church, we need some help. We need some instruction. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he gives him some instruction. So let's read these verses together. And as you know me, I'll probably stop along the way and just make some comments, and then we'll get into the bulk of what God's Word has to say to us. Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Let me stop right there because I have some friends as I was sharing this. Uh, those first two verses were this week and they immediately uh, asked the question. So see there in the Bible is the word slavery. Yes, indeed, it is right there. There's a whole message that we could preach about why there's slavery. Why does it mention in the Bible? Some of you will know this, but anywhere you have inequality and you have exploitation and you have humanity... You're going to have things like slavery. Slavery exists for those of us who had the opportunity to go out to the third world. Slavery exists in the third world. Slavery exists in the first world. Slavery exists in the United States of America. We just don't call it slavery. So anywhere you have depravity of man and sin, and you have inequality and exploitation, you're going to have slavery. And slavery existed in Bible times. Christianity actually arose amongst uh, slavery, when slavery was commonplace. In the Roman Empire, scholars tell us there were probably close to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And what's interesting is some slaves held privileged positions. Some slaves, when they went to church, they may have been a leader in the church, and yet their master may not have been a leader, which caused some very interesting things going on even in church life. So the Bible does not endorse slavery. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible in its entirety and don't pull things out of context, you'll discover that Jesus, along with Paul and other writers of the New Testament, they believe this very central truth. They believe that when people were transformed by the gospel, things like racism and things like hatred and greed and class status, those would go away in light of the gospel and slavery would eventually be eliminated. So they were more about pro propagating and propelling the gospel forward because they knew that would be the solution to make a society without slavery possible. I believe that too. And the church itself was actually a place where slavery was destroyed because it was not uncommon again for a master and a slave to go to church together. And sometimes the master was expected to submit to the slave's spiritual leadership. What a radical thought. But that's what was going on. Verse 3, Paul says this, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes among words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, 
in constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For money is the root of all evil. Amen? It's not, is that not what it says? That's what I hear people misquote the Bible all the time. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Let's just stop right there and we'll finish out First Timothy next Sunday. What do we see here when Paul is writing to Timothy? What are some things he's trying to tell Paul? Paul is trying to tell Timothy uh, in his teaching. What is he trying to say? If you want to uh, follow along or fill out your outline that's in your bulletin this morning, you can do that. Here's the first one. He talks about false teachers. And the thing that he says that's important, and you'll recognize, and you'll be able to determine and discern who is a false teacher, the first way you'll be able to know they're a false teacher is if they do not consent to God's Word. Now, I think the King James Version says... They do not consent to God's word. The New American Standard Version says, if they do not agree with sound words. King James says, if any man teach otherwise and consent not, does not agree to wholesome words. You know, it is possible not to profess any ungodly or manifest error, somebody said, and yet to corrupt the doctrine of godliness by not being edified by the teaching of God's Word. You say, Pastor Jack, what are you trying to say? There are a lot of ways not to consent to God's Word. What Paul is telling Timothy, there are a lot of ways to not acknowledge God's Word. We live in a culture, as a matter of fact, even among Christians who don't consent to God's Word. There are people on television, there are people in the media, on radio, there are people writing books and selling them by the tens of thousands who look like they are believers, who look like they're prophets of God, and yet the reality is they are false teachers. How do you know the difference? Paul is telling Timothy, one way you'll know is they don't consent to God's word. They don't consent to sound words. What does that mean? It means there are a lot of different ways not to consent to the truth of God's word. Let me give you some of them. The first way you and I can not consent to God's word is we can deny what it says. We can just choose to totally deny what it says. We can read it, and people do read it, and people who call themselves Christians read it and come up with excuses and say, well, that doesn't apply to me or my situation. I was watching on social media this week with a friend who got unfriended. Well, he was standing up for a biblical principle, and the, the feed got longer and longer, the comments where they were back and forth, which, by the way, is not a good place to try to convince someone of your convictions. That's not the purpose of social media. Sitting down with someone and having a face-to-face conversation is a much better opportunity and probably will have a much better result. But I watched as this feed kind of played out on social media, back and forth, back and forth. And the person who was basically chastising my friend was saying, I don't really believe that that's what God's Word is saying. 
And I know we have a lot of people who have different interpretations of God's Word, which is why it's important that you and I, as children of God, know God's Word. And we have to know it front to back because there are many people, many false teachers that will pull things out of content and tell you, and out of context, and will tell you, well, this is what the Bible says. And it sounds really good. The only problem is it's not true. So one way we cannot consent to God's Word is we can deny it. Another way we can not consent to God's Word is we can ignore it. And you know by now I like to write down questions in my notes as the Holy Spirit prompts my heart. And one of the questions I wrote after recognizing that one way we cannot consent to God's Word is ignoring it was this question for myself. How much time am I spending in God's Word? Ignoring God's Word is not consenting to God's Word. And church family, hold me accountable as I hold you accountable as one of the pastors of this church. If you and I are consuming social media and other media content 50 hours a week and we're consuming God's Word five minutes a week, guess who's going to win? Not Christ in you, the hope of glory, but the enemy. And that's what's happened. You have a lot of people who claim to be Christians who even publish and promote things from pulpits and churches because they have filled themselves with what the world says and slowly but surely, like the frog in the kettle I've talked about before, they're slowly moving away from what God's Word actually says. It doesn't happen overnight. Most pastors that I know, most preachers that I know, want to preach God's Word. They want to be 100% accurate. They want to honor this book. They want to make sure they preach it right. But if you're not in God's Word consistently, you will start to do what Paul is warning Timothy about. You will see people that are not consenting to God's Word. Another way is to kind of explain God's Word away. Well, that, God's, God said that for that time. That really doesn't apply to right now. There are some things where that's the case. There are some things where that's not the case. Say, Pastor, how do you know? You've got to get into the Bible and read it. Some people will try to twist God's Word. It's another way not to consent to God's Word. They will twist it and try to use it to serve their own debates and disputes. And here's what is very scary in our North American culture, especially in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt in the South where we happen to live, and there's a church on every corner. What's very scary to me is that we can be so surrounded by God's truth, we might even can memorize God's Word and memorize the Bible and it not have an effect on our life that changes the trajectory of eternity. So we got to get into God's Word. We can't ignore God's Word. Curiosity or interest in God's Word, by the way, without submitting to God's Word is very dangerous. And we see it played out in our world. And so he says... Timothy, if you want to know the false teachers, look for those who are not consenting to God's Word. But he also says you'll recognize them by another characteristic. He says this in verse 4, they will be conceited. You ever know anybody that was conceited? Proud? Arrogant? Ignorant? It's interesting that those most proud sometimes know the least. Paul actually talked about this to the church at Philippi. In Philippi chapter 2, verses 3, he, he was even telling the church at Philippi they were apparently struggling inside the church. Remember, that's who he's writing to, Christians and believers. Apparently, they were struggling with the same thing because he said to them, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, Philippians chapter 2. 
Selfish ambition, of course, is when we try to do things with our, for our personal gain. But conceit is actually altogether different. It's still based on selfishness. But conceit is an act based on an exalted, an exalted view of ourself, our own importance. That we just think we're, we're all that. And we're special. We, we don't need to know what anybody else has to think. And what conceit does is it causes us to gaze endlessly at ourselves, admiring who we are, being impressed with ourselves, and putting our attention on us and ignoring our neighbor. And you see that not only among pastors and ministry leaders across the country and the world, but it trickles down into the church. When I used to go travel a lot and visit churches, you could determine very quickly the characteristic of the pastor by the characteristics of the congregation. And when I would walk in into a church and visit and see the congregation humble and in humility and hospitable and greeting and loving and all that, I could just tell, wow, the pastor must be a very loving person. But those that kind of would stay to themselves and sit in their seat and act like, well, who is this person coming into my church? Those are the people that I could determine really quickly. I know what kind of pastor you got. Conceited. What causes us to be conceited? Thinking about ourselves, as Paul says elsewhere in one of his other letters, thinking of ourselves more highly than we, than we ought. But then Timothy hears more words from Paul. He says, not only is this person going to be conceited and understand nothing, but he will have a morbid interest in controversial questions. Morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes. In other words, Paul's saying, they will, you will see these people get off on, uh, I like to say, majoring on the minors, little things that are molehills that all of a sudden turn into mountains that really don't affect the eternity of a person or a church or a soul or a situation, but they'll get focused on all these little things that don't matter and they will start to quarrel about them. They will actually, the translation there literally, literally says when he says a morbid interest, the original language actually says a sick fascination. That that's all they want to talk about. A sick craving for those things that don't matter. And what we know to be true in every church, every ministry, every organization. This principle that Paul is sharing with Timothy is true throughout life in every club, in every organization, in every business. If you have people in those businesses that want to quarrel and get so uh, just obsessed with trivialities and things that don't matter, it's destructive. And that's what Paul is warning of. Years ago, I mentioned the other book at Barnes & Noble, Leslie Flynn. If you want to pick up another great book for reading, you're on vacation maybe, it's called Great Church Fights. Isn't that, isn't that just a great name for a book? <laughs> he, he chronicles the way people in different churches would go after each other. And he tells a story, there's this young father, this young dad out in his backyard uh, with his kids. He looks outside and he sees his daughter with several playmates and they're just, they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth at each other. And he intervenes and says, hey, cut it out, what are you doing? And his daughter goes, hey, Dad, we're just playing church. <laughs> scary, scary. Controversials, controversies and quarrels. But then he goes on. And Paul says, not just a morbid interest in those things. 
Out of which arise, by the way, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. But also, the next characteristic he mentions is that they will be causers of friction. They will frame notions of things that are their own, and then they will try to impose them on other people. Well, this is the way I look at it, so this is the way you should look at it. They will be causers of friction. Men of corrupt minds, destitute of truth. I just a couple weeks ago had to go to the uh, body shop for my truck and spend an ungodly amount of money putting brake pads on. I know some of you do that. Next time I'll call you, give me your telephone number, please. And as he was explaining to me what happens, which I know, and you know this too, if you're a owner of a vehicle any length of time, you know this to be true. Those brake pads are on there for a purpose because they serve as a buffer when you start slowing down at the stop sign or the intersection. Those brake pads help you stop. If you don't have brake pads and you get into the metal, oh, and he was warning me, Mr. Eason, had you not come in, you would be spending a lot more money because it would be past the rubber of the brake pads right into the what? The rotors, that's right. And you would have been spending a lot more money. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, the the literal analogy he's giving there is, these people like that. They like rubbing against the rotors. They like tearing that up. They like friction instead of having the buffer of peace and patience and the other things Paul outlines in Galatians chapter 5. Those fruits of the Spirit that keep harmony and fellowship and unity. But then he says this last thing he says about them. They're not only be deprived of the truth, but they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This is another characteristic. And again, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. And he's also talking about false teachers or leaders or ministers or pastors or teachers. And he's saying, look, if you want a characteristic of those that are false teachers, they will be treating godliness as a means of gain. And I'm telling you, church family, of any time I've ever seen in my lifetime in church history on the planet, this is the day where people are standing up proclaiming Jesus. And a lot of them who are doing so is so that they can have great gain, so that they can have their entourage follow them along and carry their briefcases. They come into the church office and they can have their fancy vehicles and they can have their jets so that they can fly around the country and share the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I saying those things are wrong? Not necessarily. But you better watch out. It depends on their motive. It depends on what their passion is. And if they're motivated by desire for wealth and comfort, Paul is telling Timothy, watch out for those people. If their desire is more for wealth and comfort than sharing the truth of the gospel with people that they serve, watch out. And we see it, and you see it. It's really sad, to be honest. It makes me very upset, to be honest. Okay, I'll be even more honest. It makes me angry sometimes. To see these people. Because what they do, and what happens oftentimes, is they present Christianity is based on what you will gain by following Jesus. You better read your whole Bible, because everywhere I hear about Jesus, and when he was talking to his disciples, he was talking more often about what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. Many times he said, it will cost you your life. Take up your cross and follow me. 
And yet the world likes to put an attractive spin on that. Why? Because it gets people to show up. And if you and I or any pastor leader starts to market the gospel in a way that it becomes a product that's going to fix every life's problem, that's a false teacher. Now, I will readily admit, as even we heard in our testimony this morning from Wanda, when God shows up, He intervenes and He changes things. And praise God, sometimes He fixes things. And sometimes where there's no peace, He brings peace and comfort. And sometimes where there's terror, He brings joy. But sometimes He doesn't fix everything. Some of you know that because you've lost loved ones or you've gone through challenges or you've lost a job and you look back on that situation and go, where was God? Or we see tragedy and we go, where was God? Does that mean God's not there as Joey said? No, God's here. So we have to be careful as leaders. We have to be careful as Crossroads Church that we don't tell everybody who's looking for Jesus, well, if you come to Jesus, life's going to be great. Because you know what happens? When that runs out and they realize that's not true, they go try the next product or the next brand down the street. I tried that Jesus stuff. That don't work. So I'm going to go over here and try product number two. Jesus never promised us life was going to be a rose garden. He said, I will be with you. I will never leave you, never forsake you. Till the end of the age, I will be with you. You can count on me. I will be with you. I will give you the peace that passes all understanding. I will be your lamp unto your feet and light unto your path. Those are promises you can take to the bank because that's what God's Word tells us. And so these people who have this sales approach where they take the focus off of Jesus and they put it onto other things, Paul is warning Timothy, be careful. Because that's a mark of someone who has their heart set on the blessings of God instead of God. Church, can I ask you a question? This is going to hurt. It hurt me this week too. (laughs) I wrote it down. Jack, are you more in love with the blessings of God or in love with God? Job had that whole experience where slowly, one thing at a time, God took away those things. To see if Job's heart was truly after God or Job was just a man because he wanted all the blessings of God. And it's easy in our North American lifestyle, the way all of us live, this pastor included, where I could just say, oh, I love God. But if God starts taking things away from me, do I still love God? I'd love to tell you this morning, yes, I I hope so. It's interesting that Paul tells Timothy this because he rolls right into the next verse and starts to change the conversation a little bit and moves from teaching him some things to look out for when it comes to false teachers to saying, hey, by the way, here's though how you can be content and how a pastor, ministry leader, speaker, teacher should be content and God's people should be content because those people are seeking after godliness for great gain. But here's the reality, Timothy. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. So he's saying, Timothy, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't pursue godliness, which is the first thing you've got to do to recognize contentment. I'm just saying if you're pursuing godliness for something that you can get from it other than being godly, maybe you're not really pursuing godliness. If I'm pursuing godliness so people at Crossroads or people in this community would think, wow, that Pastor Jack over there, he's a really godly guy. If that's the reason I'm pursuing it, I'm not really pursuing godliness. I'm pursuing pride or status. 
You see how easy the enemy can trick us into even the pursuits of a heart, which is why the Word of God tells us, watch out for your heart because your heart is very wicked. If it's not held in check with what God's Word says. And so is our mind, which is why the Word says to take captive every thought into Christ Jesus because our minds and our hearts can just squirrel. Especially if you have ADD, it's really, really bad. So we have to put those things in check. So Paul tells his friend Timothy, his son in the faith, yes, godliness is important. But if it's with contentment, it's even better. What, what is contentment? I struggled with that this week because I was thinking, what is contentment? Contentment. Because I've had some friends ask me over the years, are you content? That's a great question. Am I content? What do you mean by that? Am I content? And you may look in the dictionary, I did this week, just to make sure I knew what that word meant. And some dictionaries say satisfied. I don't know if I like that definition or not. I like it in the context, I'm not denying God's word by the way, I'm just asking is that a good, accurate definition of contentment? Because I am satisfied when it comes to the spiritual things in my life. Much like Joseph, he was satisfied no matter the circumstance, no matter the place, no matter his condition. He was satisfied in Jesus alone. So he was content. That would be a great definition of content. I think sometimes when we get those confused, contentment and satisfaction. Satisfaction, I, I am not satisfied with the number of people that are at Crossroads Baptist Church. Because there are more people in our community that need to know the gospel. I am not satisfied with the amount of scripture I know because I don't know enough. So that's more status quo. That's not really what Paul is telling Timothy. Paul is saying contentment is different. Contentment is the ability to have joy no matter the circumstance you find yourself in. Again, much like Joseph, it's that inner peace that you have in your soul and your heart no matter the situation, circumstance, or place God has put you in. And it's essential to make it through life, by the way. Contentment is essential. Paul would not tell Timothy and instruct him to do something that was impossible. Godliness, he said, is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And what I've discovered and what Paul tells Timothy is, you can only be content when you're trusting the Lord with the future. And so you've got to pursue godliness. But the second thing that he says there, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He reminds in verse 7, we brought nothing into this world. We can't take anything out of it. What's he saying there? He's saying, you've got to recognize this. The second thing about being content, recognize everything belongs to God. The reason that we need to learn that is because he just said you can't take anything out of the world. Not to be morbid, but you and I have never seen a hearse, a U-Haul behind a hearse. You've probably heard that before. You can't take it with you. We are great at accumulating as much as possible, but the reality is when you and I leave this planet, all of our stuff is going to be passed to somebody else. And you may have some children in line who are going, I know and I'm ready. It's just stuff. It's going to pass by. We can't take it with us. Everything that we have belongs to God. That's a hard concept to get into our hearts and in our minds because our culture, our consumer culture, uh, feeds us uh, uh, to be discontent. 
commercials. I saw some this week. I wish I'd ripped them off the internet and played them up here for you because some of them are hilarious. The stuff that the world tries to get us, oh, don't you need this? Don't you need that? And we just, we start watching it. And then we get sucked in. Some of the inventions they're coming up with, it's like, who came up with that? And they want you to think you need it. And you're watching, oh, I, I need that. I don't need it. It's crazy. It's hard to be content. The reality is, if we're all honest, we almost always desire more than we need. And by the way, that's why getting out of the country is a great idea. Because you see people in other parts of the world who have less than and are more joyful. That's why going to part of a different part of the state, like Bennettsville, South Carolina, is another good reason to go on, on a trip and get out of your comfort zone, your area, and see what other people, how other people survive. And you'll realize that your definition of need is a lot different than God's definition of need. Because one promise you can take to the bank that the world has twisted is that God will supply your every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Not your every want, and not what you define as your need, but what God defines as your need. It's no uh, easier scene than at Christmas time, for those of you who have had young kids or grandkids, and you spend an exorbitant amount of money on this great gift, and you give it to them, and after about 30 minutes, you look over in the corner, and what are they playing with? The cardboard box that it came in. And you're thinking, if I could have given you a cardboard box, I'd have gone over to Food Line out back and just got one and given that to you and saved a lot of money. It's very interesting. The third thing that Paul tells Timothy here, not only recognizing everything belongs to God, but you have to be joyful with little. In verse 8, he says, if you've got food and you've got covering, be content. If you've got food and a place to sleep, be content. I've shared this statistic with you before, but just appropriate with what we're reading this morning. If you make more than $15,000 annually, your household income is more than $15,000 annually. That's poverty level in the United States, I know. But do you recognize that's in the top 5% of wealth on the planet? Let that sink in. I know, it blows my mind. Joyful with little. And it's easy for you and I to say, well, I'm content, I'm content. Often the truth of the matter and the, the way to discover whether I am content or not content is to look maybe on my online bank statement or my credit card statement and see what the expenditures are. Because it's most often discovered whether we're content or not by looking at our spending habits. What are we spending our money on? Where are, we, where are we using those things that God has given us? How much of a place does, ladies forgive me, but how much of a place does shopping and buying have in our life? Guys too, we have our, we have our toys. They're just more expensive usually. I'm not saying don't get those toys. And that's not what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying, keep these things in check, in perspective. How does material loss affect your happiness? How happy would you get if some of your material things were taken away? Just reading some questions I wrote for me. How happy am I when I'm giving stuff away? 
You ever, you've heard that story where the parents are teaching their little boy about giving. And they gave him a quarter to put in the offering plate. And the offering plate comes by and he's got that quarter pinched between his thumb and index finger. And he's holding it and everybody's kind of looking down the aisle like, where's, where's the offering plate? You know, it's kind of got held up. What's going on? And he's sitting there like this. Finally, his dad's shaking his wrist trying to get the quarter out because he's clenched onto that thing. What a great picture that sometimes is what we do as adults. And the reality is what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is if you want to be content, you have to trust God to be your provision. Boy, we are living in a world right now, church, where if you're watching the TV, and I would suggest cutting it off, where the world is just going to ramp it up. They're going to try to get you and I so terrified and so scared of the future that we're going to start forgetting a lot of those verses I quoted about God is with us, He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. They're going to try to get us to forget all those verses because they're going to try to get us consumed with what's happening with money and inflation in the world. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand and be oblivious to it. I'm just saying keep all those things that you and I are hearing in the media in check with what this book says. I already cheated and I already read the end of the book and I already know who wins. If you don't know who wins, come see me after the service and I'll tell you, we, we, believers, we win. We win. I hope that you know the Lord this morning because if so, you'll, you're on the winning team. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning. I pray for myself. Would you help me be God? A person who truly knows content. Lord, remind me the importance of teaching the truth of your word because we live in a world where there is so much false teaching. I pray for these friends in this room, those who are teachers, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers. What a responsibility! Give us your wisdom. As we share your word, that we would never be, we would never be accused of being a false teacher. We would not ignore your word. We would get into your word. We would dive into your word. We would hunger after your word. Lord, I pray not only for us as leaders, but for every person in this room today, what you say to Timothy is appropriate for each one of us that call ourselves children of God. So, Lord, I pray you'd speak to our hearts even in this moment. Friend, while you're praying right there in your seat, maybe this morning you find yourself here today, maybe you're visiting, and you're struggling with that whole thing of contentment. Can I just give you a promise from the authority of God's Word? You'll you'll never be content, and I will never be content, until I fully surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, if that's the prayer of your heart, as you just take a quick introspection in your heart and you maybe come to realize, you know what, I'm not content and I need that contentment that comes from knowing Jesus. If that's you this morning, in just a minute, my friend Joey is going to lead us in a song of invitation, a a closing song for our service. And when he does, I just want to invite you to come down, let me shake your hand, uh, meet you, greet you, pray with you. 
I'll tell you how you can come to know Jesus. It's very simple. It's just calling out upon the name of the Lord. Saying, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I give you control of my life. If that's the prayer of your heart, in just a moment as we sing, I want to invite you just to let that be known this morning. The rest of us, church family, maybe you, this morning, you have been wrestling with this whole contentment thing, and you just need to come to the front and bow on these steps and treat this as an altar. That's what it is. And pray this morning and say, God, help me. Teach me. Show me how to be content. Whatever it is God's doing in your heart today, I pray that you'd be obedient to what he's telling you to do. Lord, I pray you'd have your way during this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? If you need to respond this morning, I'll be here to greet you. Love to just receive you this morning. If you're visiting and you want to put your roots down here at Crossroads, love to have you come join us. Let's sing together. We hope you've been challenged and inspired from today's message. You can find out more about the message you have heard today by visiting our website, hope at crossroads.org. If you live in the upstate South Carolina area and you're looking for a church home, we hope you'll come by and visit sometime. Details about our church and service times can also be found online. In addition, we want to invite you to check out some of the great items at our website that will help you, or you can give as a gift to a friend. Devotionals and other resources are all available at hope at crossroads.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will tune in again next week.